Welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click, the e-commerce podcast for brands looking for their next growth opportunities. If you're interested in improving your conversion rates, average order values, and customer lifetime value, head over to customerswhoclick.com where you can find all our previous episodes and get in touch if you'd like to learn more. This episode is for all you Shopify enthusiasts and aficionados out there. We're diving into the world of A-B testing with Trina Moitra, a true maven in the field. It's like having a crystal ball, but for your Shopify store, knowing what works and what doesn't before you roll the dice. We'll also be delving into how you can pinpoint those unique selling points that really grab your customers' attention. Let's get Trina on now. Hi, Trina. Thanks for joining me today. Give us a bit of an introduction to yourself. Absolutely. So right now I'm here from Convert. So I lead growth up at convert.com. It's as it's an A-B testing tool. It's an A-B testing tool that has been created specifically to bring enterprise-grade features to the self-service market. My background specifically is actually I started my education off as an engineer, but from there on out, I developed this interest in how people interact with their surroundings. So it was like understanding how people take actions, understanding the type of copy to write in order to influence their state of awareness, their state of being. And from there on out, I slowly found myself getting sucked into this beautiful world of marketing. So right now I do B2B as well as DTC. And one of my passions is basically transposing principles off of DTC to B2B and vice versa. How do you get customers clicking? Oh, that's a question and a half. So basically, I like to approach it from the perspective of awareness. So if I'm going after a cold audience, I've seen that one of two ways works really well. So you can either join the conversation that is already happening in their heads. So people generally have conversations in their heads about the symptoms of the problem that they have. So nobody wakes up and says, hey, I need to buy toothpaste today. They are not going around obsessed with toothpaste, but they are going around obsessed with, hey, my gums bleed, my breath sucks, my teeth are getting yellow. So basically joining that conversation in their heads for a cold audience is really effective in my opinion everything that i've tried and the other thing is just to spark that that feeling of i want to share this so this will make me look good this will make me look smart i had a really good laugh with this i want to join this movement whatever principles these people have i want to subscribe to that these are the two things that generally tend to work when you are with a cold audience and at this stage it's important to note that the click in and of itself is the objective it's no longer a vanity metric yeah it's really interesting you talk about not toothpaste specifically, but yeah, how people think about it. I've got an example. It's just happened to me. I've been trying to use a Pomodoro timer to help me focus better. And I just have a browser extension one, right? So it'd be up in my pinned Chrome uh, extensions. All I'd have to do is click it and it starts the timer. And then it prompts me when each session is done. It prompts me to do short break, long break and all that sort of thing. And I, I just kept, I was never consistent with it. I kept mm-hmm. forgetting to use it. So then I thought, okay, let me make it a bit more obvious. And I downloaded a an app for the for my computer. So this app actually it sits there pinned in my desktop bar. So it's a little bit more obvious. There's a, a big red tomato in the middle of my apps. And it's always open, right? So if I minimize Chrome or whatever, I can see it there in the background. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. I need to do that. Also, obviously it then pings me when breaks are up and stuff. It's still not working for me. So what I've done now. It literally arrived today. I now have a physical digital Pomodoro timer that now sits on my desk. So I can, I've just got that constant physical reminder right there. And it's, and I think it's a similar thing to, to why I like to have a to do list that's written down. 
So even though I, I use Airtable and I've got all my tasks in there, when I'm deciding what to do each day, it's in my it's in my calendar, it's in my Airtable, and it also gets written down. And that's the bit that actually keeps me focused. So that makes sense. again like it, it's similar to that. No, nobody wakes up thinking I need toothpaste. Just I didn't. I've not been thinking. Oh, I need to use a timer every day. But it's trying to figure out what the best version of that timer is that's going to help me. Um, being more productive and i think obviously i've literally used it once because it arrived this afternoon i think this physical timer is going to be the best version for me yeah that makes sense and also in a sense if you are trying a bunch of stuff and it's not really working sometimes it's the prompts yes some people are more susceptible to physical prompts than digital prompts but sometimes it might also be a problem of poor motivation so when we are marketers we also got to look at that yeah absolutely before we dive into the actual main topic today, I'd just like to get like your thoughts on what CRO is. Like how how would you describe CRO? Okay, so beyond the naming drama? Okay, fine. So you're gonna try you're trying to get me in trouble. Okay, fine. I'll preface this with I am biased. I'm biased as to the meaning of CRO because of how I was introduced to it. Basically, for me, CRO was uh, getting as many people as possible to take the next immediate action. So that was my introduction to CRO. But this is the reason why I think of CRO as a more of a limited scope arm of experimentation. So experimentation to me is a lot more expansive. For example, at Convert, we have the saying, experimentation is human nature. So basically, each and every org, brand, person experiments. They are all trying out different stuff. They are looking to see whether it works or not. And then they are either building on it or they are finding the next hill to climb, right? So that's experimentation. That's spontaneous. That is always happening. CRO, to me, again, like I said, this is personally biased, is basically improving the engagement with some sort of call to action. Yeah, I think that's a good explanation, I think. It's, <laughs> it's just whatever that next step, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think, and there are two uh, ways to look at it again, because you can be like, hey, I need to get these people to the next step any which way. Bigger button, more people clicking, hey, yay, like win for CRO. Or it can be more realistic. It can be like, hey, I need to get more people to the next stage, so why don't I build a brand and do some demand gen? And then that is also the end result is CRO. It is conversion rate optimization. Yeah, yeah. the way we look at it is, and, and I think the mistake a lot of people make actually looking at it is, how do we improve conversion rates? Right? And actually, conversion That's rates right for a website, it's, it's really difficult to impact. But also, it's just a massive question, isn't it? It wouldn't surprise me if there's like a million things you can do on your website. Literally, like cl- close to a million things that you could do uh, with your website or your advertising or whatever to improve conversion rates. So yeah, we break it down into what are all those tiny little steps that someone has to take in order to convert. So the first stage would be, how do we make them find a product? Mm-hmm. But then you break that further th- down into some people use search. So how do we make search more visible? Right. Then how do we make search better? And and then you move through all those pieces. And you know, I'm, I'm, I know we're going to get into it in a sec, but the actual selling points, right? It's not a case of, cool, we've got someone to a product page. All we've got to do is get them to click the add to cart button. There's going to be 10, 15, 20, could be 100 little pieces of information on that page that people want to see. How do you think brands can find those best selling angles for their products? 
Okay, so basically for me, I would say selling angles are hooks that map the USP of the product you're selling to a relevant pain point or friction of the audience who will benefit from the product. So in my opinion, hooks facilitate emotional transactions. So the first thing about a brand, so the, the very premise of a brand is emotional transactions. People react with you, people. It is all about how you are making people feel and that in in turn shapes how they think about your product or your brand. And I would say selling angles are potentially breadcrumbs your brand leaves behind as it navigates the addressable market. Because there is only one USP. Yes, there is only one main differentiator, but there are so many child differentiators that are like really good candidates for selling angles. So my process for finding the selling angles is first and foremost, do a ton of research, find out the words and the language that your market is using. Please don't get into selling angles, writing what you have in your head. It has to resonate with the people that you are writing it for. So the first point is, why are you different? Make a list of all the potential differentiators, like all of it, everything that you can find. Then what are the jobs to be done for your customers? So why are they hiring your product, your brand? Then the third step is what are the anxieties and friction points for your potential customers? How are your buyers wording these jobs to be done and anxieties and friction points? So some places that I look in is surveys. I look on Reddit. I also love to look in the YouTube comments section. That's just literal gold. Then YouTube comments. Yes, yes. Find okay. a find a video. For example, if you are selling, let's say you are selling a mascara. So find a video on YouTube. Let's say it's a volumizing mascara. Find a video on YouTube that is very closely related to the product that you have. So for example, pain points for volumizing mascaras, how to apply volumizing mascaras, and then go through the comments. People are literally talking about their issues using words that they would with their friends and family, and that is good for you. Yeah, because I, I think the, the key, key thing here is we're not looking for specific comments about your product. We're no, looking no, no, for no. specific comments about why people want this product. Right, right. Just the concept of the product in general. So you got to look through that. Like what If they love it, why do they love volumizing mascaras in general? If they hate it, why are they hating it? For example, like I was recently working on volumizing mascaras. That's why it just popped okay. into my head. So one of the things that I found is basically volumizing mascaras thicken really fast. They are really bad for layering. And we, in, in fact, our product is really good for layering. So it's like now one of the strong USPs that we'll be presenting on that page. And that came from a YouTube comment. So it, it really is gold to so pay attention to the YouTube comments. Then map your differentiators to the jobs to be done in the consideration phase. In the consideration phase, again, this is me transposing B2B with DTC. In the consideration phase, people are looking for basically all of the deal breakers. So if any of these jobs to be done is not done by your product, the deal would be off. They wouldn't be buying the product. So map your differentiators to jobs to be done for that consideration phase and then map your differentiators to jobs to be done in the decision phase, which is basically when people get to the decision phase, when they already have a consideration set, they have already made their decision. So these are just like the nice to haves. Once you have that list, then experiment, test away, copy test and find your best selling angle. Yeah, so we break it down into like anxieties, which are the questions and concerns people have about a product. And that, that normally is, what does this product do? How does it work? 
it, it's a lot of them are very functional questions, right? I'm trying to think of an example really quickly. I'm looking around like this microphone, I suppose. I suppose a key thing for me was how does it actually plug in? Can I plug this into my computer or do I need one of those? I don't know. I can't remember what they're called now. The little boxes which you plug. Boards, uh, no, not USB boards. The actual the professional audio oh, box things okay. that you plug microphones in. I think you plug video in as well. It's Something like high quality and stuff. Pro quality setup, pro quality result, beginner setup or novice setup, something like that. Yeah, that that would be something that gets me to to a product. But I literally just want to know on that product page: is it a USB microphone? Mm-hmm. That's a key piece of information. If I don't get the answer to that question, I can't buy it. I'm not going to spend. I think I think this microphone's about two hundred pounds, right? So I'm not going to spend two hundred pounds on a microphone if I don't know if it actually fits my requirement. So these are the things we talk about as, like you were saying, map those jobs to be done pieces to it. And then there are those nice-to-haves, which is free shipping, free returns, a warranty and stuff. Those are great, but they only matter if I've made the decision on the price. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So how much weight would you place on research versus just, I guess, like running a few tests based on what you think is is the right thing to do and using the insight that you get from testing to then make further progress? Actually, to me, there is no testing or anything without research. So it's either implicit or it's explicit. So implicit, you ran research on a prior project. You read something from a colleague. You looked at something on a competitor's site. Now you have all of this data and information in your head you remember some of it and likely you remember the bits that validate what you already know. And then you come with this bias to experimentation and you run the test. That's implicit research. That's shoddily done research. You did some research. There is information in your head and you're still coming there with a heavy layer of bias around it. So that is your implicit research. Then there is explicit research where you say, wait a minute, hold up. I'm going to fall in love with the problem first. I'm not going to chase the solution. I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to look at the data. I'm going to find mine the insights. And then I'm going to first structure the problem. Like, yeah, this is the problem that I'm looking to solve. And now I can take those insights and I can have a variety of different solutions because a problem can have multiple different solutions. If I tweak the Uh, execution parameter of a test even a little bit I get a variant right there's a variation in that so basically just take a look at that turn those into testable hypotheses and then go ahead and you experiment but you are researching in both cases in one case it is implicit it is bias driven and the other case it is explicit and you are actually doing yourself a favor in that case that's right so you can do you can do that research method both ways can't you? you can start with the research, for example, go onto YouTube and see what people are writing in the comments. And that allows you to pick out some of those problems. Or you could do what most brands do, which is find the solution first. <laughs> and instead of just implementing it, reverse reverse engineer it. Right. Right? So many brands just install apps on their website. They see the, the marketing from the app and they think, yes, I need that. Or they see it on a competitor website and they say, yep, that's going to make my website better. And if you ask the question, why? Like, what's the problem this is solving? They'll come up with something quickly. Everyone will come up with an answer to that question, but it'll be backed on nothing except their gut feeling, right? But that doesn't mean you can't start the process that way 
as long as you then say, okay, let's go figure out if we do have that problem. Yeah. Let's go do some research now. And, and at least now you've got a, you've got something to target with your research. Because mm-hmm. I think it, it can be a bit overwhelming to just say, do we just go and read comments? What are we trying to do with this? Whereas at least if you start with the, the solution, you work your way backwards and now you're looking for comments that 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 support that the only obvious problem there is you're going to have a bias there you confirmation bias as soon as you see one as soon as you see one or two comments about it you're going to go yep that's That's a problem for all our all of our customers we need to do this i remember doing some research for a company a client what was it last year yeah i think it was last year and it was a it's a pillow for neck pain right Mm -hmm. and so we were using the term it's great for neck pain shoulder pain that sort of thing and as part of this research, I noticed that the, the people were mentioning stiffness. Mm-hmm. They find they get stiffness when they're recovering from sports, playing sports, and they if they find that the pillow helps them with that. And I thought, oh, this is great. We haven't even considered using the term stiffness. This is something we need to look at. And then when I did the quick summing up the, uh, the key themes that came out of this research, out of something like three, four hundred responses, stiffness was mentioned twice. But because I'd picked it out myself as something different, it stood out to me and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. So you've got to be really careful and make sure you, you do the research properly. I know getting like statistical significance with research is difficult. Yeah. But so yeah, that's generally what I aim like 200 to 300 responses for qualitative. I've seen that you can find pretty reliable patterns. Obviously, given the quantum of the problem itself, you can find reliable patterns if you have 100 to 300 responses at the very least. But you can, st- you can still be quite broad with this as well. You, you're not looking for exact solutions to come out of that research. You're looking for the theme. Like the safety net here is always testing, right? You're always going to test what works well. Either you're going to test it in yeah. your PPC ads or you're going to test it on your landing pages. Exactly. Like going back to the toothpaste example, you're not looking for people to specifically say, I'm looking for a toothpaste that, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example now. Yeah, I'm really not very good at this. Not right. we, Obviously, te- teeth whitening is important. Right. But I don't know, if people want to be really specific with it, that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for just people want whiter teeth. There are a decent number of people who are responding to this about the color of their teeth or the whiteness of their teeth or the yellowness of their teeth or whatever. That's the group of responses we're looking for. Because um, otherwise, you, what you might have is you might actually have a lot of people mentioning yellow teeth and that might somehow lead you down the route of people don't want yellow teeth, but is actually the solution people want white teeth. That's, and that's where the testing comes in, right? Is it the it's is it the pain or the pleasure piece that people right. respond? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. And I've seen it boils down to the very specific, and that is why branding is so important. It boils up how you structure your responses or how you structure your messaging really boils down to the kind of people you've attracted with your brand because the same very same product may let's say, portray one of the seven sins of, let's say, sloth, and they get really good responses. But then the same kind of product, they focus on envy, and that triggers the most responses. And it all just boils down to the kind of people you've attracted through the amalgamation of all of the different subtle points and energies, which is your brand. Yeah. Going back to that pillow example, 
one thing we were talking about was running different landing pages with different ads for loads of different use cases. And we knew we had something that came up in in interviews and feedback was sports recovery. People getting sore necks and wanting to recover and, and they found the pillow useful for that. But if we made that the entire angle for the website, we're going to drive away all the old people, the older generation who were were a a very big part of that audience, probably more so than the sports players. So not to say you can't do both, but yeah, if you're not going to use landing pages and and different approaches, you've got to make make a decision on which language you use and which direction you want to take it in. Yeah, makes sense. Cool. What are the most common mistakes brands make in CRO? Oh boy. Yeah, I would say, I wouldn't say making mistakes in CRO because doing anything related to CRO in a sense is better than doing no CRO at all. I would zero in on the issues I've seen with running AB tests in particular, specifically with DTC brands. I think they are the bigger offenders, if I may put it that way, compared to B2B brands. And that is running underpar tests and going breakneck in the wrong direction. I've seen this. These are things that they want to do. The stats is all messed up. I have really explained that the stats is not right. You got to go. You got to use this calculator. You got to put in your MDE first, and then you're going to get your sample size. Don't peak. Don't stop the test just because the tool is telling you it is statistically significant. So I've told these things, and they were not really regarded. And then the botched up solution was implemented in the flow for the checkout and it really cost a lot of money so this is something that i am very wary of and i want people to understand the concept of risk which is even if you are running a b tests the risk is not completely eliminated if you are running shoddy a b tests you are potentially not mitigating any risks at all. And if you don't run A-B tests and you use your basically very deep, well-done research to do cohort analysis, potentially, there is also a bit of risk there, but then you are acknowledging that risk. You're saying that, yeah, this is risky. We are taking a gamble. But some people tend to think that A-B testing is like the silver bullet and they do it poorly. And There's people looking for a quick confirmation of what they yeah. Right. And as soon as you see a test performing positively, you think, oh, cool. That's great. I don't know if you saw my post the other day. I posted something like, oh, we got a 114% increase in conversion yeah. on the AB test. Here's how we did it. And then I went, we didn't because the test has been running for three days. So right. of course. we can't end that test yet. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that test was arguably statistically significant because it's that big an increase, but it's not powered. Yeah. We were look, uh, talking about I don't know, like 20, 20 conversions on that. Yeah, 5,300 person conversions. But it's just, it's such a small number that, yeah, if, if you use the wrong calculations and, and use the wrong like signals to determine whether to stop a test, then yeah, you can make some big mistakes. Matt Skaysbrook, he did a really interesting post a little while back saying how what a lot of brands, what some brands would do, sorry, is inst- they won't test, they will just make changes. I know, I know, big enough mistake there anyway. But what he said, because normally when we CROs talk about it, we say, you don't know if you're damaging your conversion rates doing that. Your conversion rate might actually be coming down, but because of seasonality and stuff, you don't really see that. Actually, he made the point that you might see your your conversion rate improving, Mm -hmm. right? It might look positive and that gives you that feeling of, cool, yeah, we were justified in doing that. 
then he said, actually, your conversion rate might be 20 to 30% higher if you hadn't made those changes. Even though you've got a little increase and it looked positive, you might now be missing out on a lot more because you made that change. And actually, yeah, so essentially, seasonality should have brought your conversion rate up. But because you've made this negative change, it hasn't hit that high. So many brands go ahead and make these massive changes site-wide right before Black Friday. We're, we're testing out a, I mean, it, it should be a guaranteed win returns policy at the moment for a client because they, at the moment they don't have one. They really, just because of their business model, just really expensive. So they basically sales are final. And now we're working with a company who handles the returns for them. And, and so we're able to offer this policy. But the reason we're testing it is we need to see what uplift this returns policy has and whether that increased conversion rate and, and possibly AOV, I don't really know if right. it's going to affect AOV that much. We need to see whether this increased impact outweighs the cost of the returns that do happen right? because this policy is in place. Right, makes sense. Right, over time, we, we might need a 30 to 40% improvement in conversion rate from the returns policy right. to justify the cost of the returns that are going to happen. That, right. That's what testing is about, taking better decisions. It's not just about yeah. moving breakneck in one direction, right? It's this considering this delicate balance of dynamics, inputs, outputs. That's what constitutes a business. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's about considering all those other factors as well, right? I know, I, I'm very confident. I don't want to say I know. I'm very confident that adding this returns policy is going to increase their conversion rates. That's why I changed it from my no to I'm very confident. Curious to hear the result of that. Do share that with me because I've seen, yeah, not seen returns policies work specifically for certain like industries. Okay, interesting. I, I would unless uh, don't know what the policies were, but yeah, there are some terms to the policy as well. We need to see yeah. if, if people are checking that out and they don't like the terms. Is that going to have a negative impact? So there's a lot to consider, but. So many brands would just say, we're adding a returns policy. Why wouldn't customers want that? Let's add it. But yeah, if, if you don't run the test, you've got no idea the impact that's having. Probably the, the same brands wouldn't actually then do the analysis on those returns either and not keep track of it in the long term. They just think this, overall, this is a positive thing. We're not really losing too much money on when we have to return a product. So let's just go for it. Makes sense. And sometimes if it's a part of your, let's say, your ingrained values, uh, I think I read a very, really good post recently. I don't remember the name and it was like, don't A-B test on your values. So I guess that was, yeah, if it's in, in some cases, even if it's just a break even, it's not really doing any damage and it's going to give the buyers more, let's say, mental satisfaction. It's going to be more of a, a point of reliability and uh, trust, then go ahead and do that. Yeah. I've had this this feedback working with brands who are doing AOVs of two, three, four thousand dollars down to brands who are doing fifty to a hundred dollars. Right. And always the feedback from customers is they don't want to return products. They just want that safety net if they have right. right. That's it. Right. Sense. That pillow the pillow brand actually, they had the statutory requirement for returns here which is 14 days and we doubled that it's not doubling we increased it to 30 days right because that's e-commerce standard right. Right. now it's almost strange if you don't have at least a 30-day policy so we increased it to 30 days conversion rate went up quite significantly and no impact on returns 
in, in fact, returns came down o- over that period because they fi- they fixed a they actually fixed a problem related to the product. So there was no negative impact. But every time I talk about testing this with brands, they're always like, "No, we don't want to take the risk with a longer returns period." Right. If people are going to return a product, they'll do it within the first week mm-hmm. or two, unless they're slow with it. You know, some people will wait until the last. I, I do it actually. I literally I put something in the post yesterday that I've been sat on for a month because. <laughs> okay, yeah, so generally- you are you are the you are the buyer brands are scared of. I am an annoying customer. Thing is, I action the return immediately. Literally, like okay. I think day one, right? I, I checked the product; it wasn't right, so I said I want to return it. It's just taken me until the end of the period to actually do it. But I think w- with most brands, obviously, there are going to be some products which maybe sit in a box for a reason, mm-hmm. for a little bit longer. Maybe if there's a gift, for example. You're not going to open a gift the moment you receive right. it. You might have to wait a few days to hand it over and then it turns out there's a problem with it. But we're still talking a week, two weeks maybe. So going up to a 30-day policy shouldn't have much impact, even for gifting. If, if you went from 30 to 60 days, you probably yeah. wouldn't see any, retur- any returns Perfect. impact. But from the tests that I've run, I've not seen much conversion improvement after 30 days. Mm-hmm. Because it's just, that's fascinating. I think people are generally like, I don't need, I don't need longer than thirty days for this. I think it's a really good selling point for certain brands like mattresses. A lot of mattresses will do that hundred day or hundred nights test, right? Which I think is a really good way of doing it. But let's be honest, you you probably know within the first few days whether you like it or not. Yeah, that's. And true. then you're also thinking, you the issue because I I had this actually. Sorry, I know I'm going on a bit. I bought a Simba mattress, I think. Okay. And I was like, I need to have my other mattress taken away. So in the end, I ended up having a mattress, a second mattress in my room for about three or four days while I tested out this so this new mattress. But I was like, I'm I'm not going to wait a hundred days <laughs> to, to make a decision yeah. on whether I get rid of the other one. So I was like, well, no, it it can just go. So I'd made a decision there really because if I'd sent it back. I'd have to go buy another mattress anyway. Okay. So any sorry, any other mistakes? Yeah, really, I would say that is the biggest one. So in my opinion, if you are doing some CRO, you are at least thinking in terms of, hey, I need to collect some data points instead of blindly copying the competitor. That to me is a big win. Please don't copy the competitors. And there's so many brands in DTC that still go around doing that because the competitor runs tests. Yeah, the competitor runs tests, so let's copy that. Ah. So. Uh. <laughs> That's not even the case. It's not, we know our competitors running tests, so let's copy it because you don't know what tests they're running. Unless every day you're taking a screenshot of their website to see what changes. All I've heard is our competitors do this. It's normally this bigger brand than us is doing this. So we need to do it. Let's go ahead and do that as well. I know. And you just don't know. You've also got to consider um, business models. Amazon can afford to do next day delivery every day for everyone in, in the UK at least it is literally next day and they can afford to do it because they 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 earn billions and mm. and they can afford to take that tiny cut to their margin so many smaller brands can't but they will try to and it just it, yeah causes problems cool uh, have you got a obviously apart from convert is there a CRO tool that you recommend yeah i am totally in love with suko 
So Zuko Analytics, um, I've oh, used yeah. it for checkouts. I've used it for form optimization. I really love their interface. I love the depth to which you can get into data. And uh, yeah, so I would say that anyone who's just starting to optimize these gatekeepers for engagement, which is basically checkouts and forms, use Zuko. Like it's pretty intuitive. If you just get into it, you can just look around a little bit. There are helpful tooltips, but there isn't really much to the interface. But then there is so much more to the data. So it's a really robust and good yeah. tool. Then the segmentation based on completions and abandonments. We've, just like this one little thing. Hey, once we trigger this, people drop off. That immediately improves conversion rates. So it's been kind of like a game changer in the entire scope of my work. Yeah. And you're literally at the highest intent point for e-commerce anyway. The highest intent point is when people are filling out the checkout forms. So Absolutely. if people are dropping off, for, for the vast majority of people who are dropping off, there must be something there that's causing them to drop off. Yes. There's always going to be a few people who accidentally click through to your checkout. I've, I have worked with a brand and on their PDP, they had a little link underneath the call to action, which was more payment options. So you had add, add to cart, more payment options. If you clicked mm -hmm. more payment options, it took you into checkout. Oh, oh. It didn't inflate numbers. just tell you, yeah, it didn't just tell you what those other payment options were. It literally took you to them. So just little things like you get a few people like that and you'll get a few people that just click on the button in cart or whatever. But there's going to be a huge amount of people who drop off because there is a problem in your cart. Right. Makes sense. Like that, that, that is it. It's really simple. And the other thing that I love about Zuko is they, they actually walk you through your data. So you can actually get on a call with their specialist and just they'll walk you through the data. They'll give you all sorts of ideas for testing as well. They'll tell you like, hey, maybe you should look into this. Maybe you should look into that. So it's just a comprehensive and very reasonably priced solution. Awesome. What would you be your final parting tip to the audience? Okay, the final parting tip would definitely be never underestimate the compounding power of building a brand. So a, a brand isn't just your logo. It isn't just your color palette. It isn't even just the copy on your site. It is basically the interplay of all of these elements that make people feel a certain way about everything you are doing right from their first interaction with you to their last interaction with you when they churn. Everything is brand. I I'll be like Simba. Everything that you touch is your brand. So don't underestimate the compounding power of building a brand. And then I go ahead and I break this down into three key sections. So basically, first and foremost, for your brand, you should have the essence of the brand, which is why your brand is here. Why are you doing what you are doing? If you don't have a strong brand essence and brand story, be it BB2B or DTC, your brand is not going to resonate. It's not going to take on the human qualities that you want your brand to take on for people to have uh, emotional transactions with them. Then there is the section where you actually put your vision into practical mission by mapping your USPs to the real world of the jobs to be done. It contextualizes this grand vision that you have. This is basically the point where you are starting to touch the everyday life of your prospective uh, customer. And then there is bridging the two 
the propagation, which is done through quantifiable touch points. So when you get to this last bit, you understand that, hey, I have this essence and I have this uh, practical aspect, which is basically the jobs to be done. Now, let me propagate that through multitudes of marketing campaigns and activities. And it is at that point of time that you realize that measuring those marketing campaigns and activities is actually also measuring the effectiveness of your brand. So your brand is not just arts and craft. It can be quantified and it has a very strong ROI multiplying, let's say, effect on everything that you do. Amazing. Cool. If anyone wants to reach out and find out more from you, what's the best way of doing that? I think I'm very much available on LinkedIn and I would be happy to answer any questions. Amazing. All right. Thank you so much, Trina. Take care, Will. Bye. What a great episode with Trina there. If you're not yet thinking about how to stand out in the crowded Shopify market, you better start now. Remember, it's not just about being different. It's about being relevantly different. If you need more insights from Trina, you know where to find her. LinkedIn's the spot. Your feedback questions and dream guests, we want to hear about them all. Get in touch at will at customersuclick.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Stay tuned for next week where I'll be chatting with Josh Hester about how they've combined both B2B and B2C elements to grow a successful business. But until then, keep those customers clicking.